0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Who Knows? Because uh, I sure don't. Well, I'm trying to figure it out. And that's what I'm doing here. You're here. Uh, you're listening to me figure it out while I tell you and we figure it out together and all this stuff. And maybe we don't figure it out and we're just reading stuff for no reason. Who knows? Um, if you were here for the last episode, um, we talked about kind of what's going on in the world a little bit in the beginning there. Um, and it brought me up to this um, question, you know, what about what about Wall Street? You know, what's going on? What? What? Let's just go back in time and see if this is similar to anything that's ever happened before, because you know, similarities and you know, trends and and patterns are my thing. So, I'm putting two and two together. So I'm on RollingStone.com and. Like always, the link to the article will be in the um, description of this podcast. You just copy and paste it. It's super easy. It's like 1995 uh, AOL type stuff. Okay. Um, uh, so this article is called, Why Isn't Wall Street in Jail? This is from February 16, 2011. So about 10 years ago. It's almost 10 years since this was written. Um, It's called, Why Isn't Wall Street in Jail? Financial crooks brought down the world's economy, but the feds are doing more to protect them than to prosecute them. And this was written by Matt Tybee. I think that's how you say his name. Who knows? All right. And it's got a picture of a pig, you know, carrying a money bag and money's just falling out behind him. And you got, you know, you got a Capitol building behind him and an American flag and, this pig's just running away with all this money. So pretty, pretty good uh, illustration by Victor Huaz. Huaz, I don't know. Over drinks at a bar on a dreary snowy night in Washington this past month, a former Senate investigator laughed as he polished off his beer. Everything's fucked up and nobody goes to jail, he said. That's her whole story right there. Hell, you don't even have to write the rest of it. Just write that. I put down my notebook. Just that? That's right, he said, signaling to the waitress for the check. Everything is fucked up, and nobody goes to jail. You can end the piece right there. Nobody goes to jail. This is the mantra of the financial crisis era, one that saw virtually every major bank and financial company on Wall Street embroiled in obscene criminal scandals and impoverished millions and collectively destroyed hundreds of billions, in fact, trillions of dollars worth of the world's wealth, and nobody went to jail. Nobody, that is, except Bernie Madoff, a flamboyant and pathological celebrity con artist whose victims happen to be other rich and famous people. This article appears in the March 3rd, 2011 issue of Rolling Stone. The issue is available now on newsstands and will appear in online archives February 18th. Okay, a little side note there, I guess. All right, the rest of them, all of them, got off. Not a single executive who ran the companies that cooked up and cashed in on the phony financial boom, an in industry, in industry-wide scan that involved the mass sale of mismarked, fraudulent mortgage-backed securities, has ever been convicted. Their names by now are familiar to even the most casual middle American news consumer. Companies like AIG, Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and Morgan Stanley. Most of these firms were directly involved in elaborate fraud and theft. Lehman Brothers had billions in loans from its investors. Bank of America lied about billions on bonuses. Goldman Sachs failed to tell clients how to put it together, how to put together the born to lose toxic morg- mortgage deals it was selling. What's more, many of these companies had corporate chieftains whose actions cost investors billions. From AIG derivatives, Chief Cassano or Jeff Joe Cassano, who assured investors they would not lose even $1 just months before his unit imploded to the $263 million in compensation that former layman chief Dick, the gorilla fold conveniently failed to disclose yet. Not one of them is time behind bars. Invasion of the home snatchers. Instead, federal regulators and prosecutors have let the banks and finance companies that tried to burn the world economy to the ground get off with carefully orchestrated settlements. Whitewash jobs that involve the firms paying pathetically small fines without even being required to admit wrongdoing. To add insult to injury, the people who actually committed the crimes almost never pay the fines themselves. Banks caught defrauding their shareholders often use shareholder money to foot the tab of justice. If the allegations in this in these settlements are true, said Jed Radkoff Reckoff, a federal judge in Southern District of New York, it's management buying its way off cheap from the pockets of their victims. They're stealing their money and paying off their fines. To understand the significance of this, one has to think carefully about the efficacy of fines as as a punishment for a defendant pool that includes the richest people on earth, people who simply get their companies to pay their fines for them. Conversely, one has to consider the powerful deterrent of uh, to further wrongdoing that the state is missing by not introducing this particular class of people to the experience of incarceration. You put Lloyd Blankfine in, in pound me in the ass prison for one six-month term, and all this bullshit would stop all over Wall Street, says a gov- former congressional aide. That's all it would take, just once. But that hasn't happened because the entire system set up to monitor and regulate Wall Street is fucked up. Just ask the people who tried to do the right thing. Here's how regulation of Wall Street is supposed to work. To begin with, there's a semi-semi-gigantic list of public and quasi-public agencies, ostensibly keeping their eyes on the economy. A dense alphabet soup of banking, insurance, SNL, securities, and commodities regulators, regulators like the Federal Reserve, the, the FDIC, and the Office of the Com- Comptroller, and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, as well as supposedly self-regulating organizations like the New York Stock Exchange. All of these outfits, by law, can at least begin the process of catching and investigating financial criminals, though none of them has prosecutorial power. Prosecutorial power. There you go. The major federal agency on the Wall Street beat is the Securities and Exchange Commission. The SEC watches for violations like insider trading, and also deals with so-called disclosure, vi- disclosure violations i.e. making sure that all the financial information that publicly traded companies are required to make public actually jibes with reality. But the SEC doesn't have prosecutorial power either. So in practice, when it looks like someone needs to go to jail, they refer the case to the Justice Department. And since the vast majority of crimes in the financial services industry take place in lower Manhattan, cases referred by the SEC often end up in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York thus the two top cops on wall street are generally considered to be that u.s attorney a job that has been held by thunderous prosecutorial personal persona like robert Morgenthau and rudy giuliani and the sec's director of enforcement the relationship between the sec and the doj is pre- is necessarily close even symbiotic since financial crime fighting requires a high degree degree of financial expertise and since the typical drug and terrorism obsessed fbi agent can't balance his own checkbook let alone tell a synthetic cdo from a credit default swap the justice department ends up leaning heavily on the sec's army of 1100 number crunching investigators to make their cases in theory it's a well-oiled tag team affair Billionaire Wall Street asshole commits fraud. The New York Stock Exchange catches on and tips off the SEC. The SEC works the case and delivers it it to justice. And and Justice Pert walks the asshole out of Nobu into a Crown Victoria and off to 36 months of push-ups, license plate making, and a Salisbury steak. That's the way it's supposed to work. But a veritable mountain of evidence indicates that when it comes to Wall Street, the justice system not only sucks at punishing financial criminals, it has actually evolved into a highly effective mechanism for protecting, fi- for protecting financial criminals. This institutional reality has absolutely nothing to do with politics or ideology. It takes place no matter who's in office or which party's in power. To understand how the machinery functions, you have to start back at least a decade ago, so like 2001. As case after case of financial malfeasance was pursued too slowly or not at all, fumbled by a government bureaucracy that too often is on a first name basis with its targets. Indeed, the shocking patterns of non-enforcement with regard to Wall Street is so deeply ingrained in Washington that it raises a profound and difficult question about the very nature of our society. Whether we have created a class of people whose misdeeds are no longer perceived as crimes, almost no matter what those misdeeds are, the SEC and the Justice Department have evolved into a bizarre species of social social surgeon serving this non-jailable class expert, not at administering punishment and justice, but at finding and removing criminal responsibility from the bodies of the accused the systematic lack of regulation has left even the country's top regulators frustrated lynn turner a former chief accountant for the sec laughs darkly at the idea that the criminal justice system is broken when it comes to wall street i think you've got a wrong assumption that we even have a law enforcement agency when it comes to wall street he says in the hierarchy of the sec the chief accountant plays a major role in working to pursue misleading and phony financial disclosures turner held held the post a decade ago when one of the most significant cases was swallowed up by the SEC bureaucracy. In the late 1990s, the agency had an open and shut case against the Rite Aid drugstore chain, which was using diabolical accounting tricks to cook their books. But instead of moving swiftly to crack down on such scams, the SEC shoved the case into the deal with it later file. The Philadelphia office literally did nothing with the case for a year. Turner recalls, very much like the New York office with uh, Bernie Madoff. The Rite Aid case dragged on for years, and by the time it was finished, similar accounting fiascos at Enron and WorldCom had exploded into a full-blown financial crisis. The same is true for another SEC case that presaged the Enron disaster. The agency knew that appliance maker Sunbeam was using the same kind of accounting scams to systematically hide losses from its investors. But in the end, the SEC's punishment for Sunbeam CEO Al Chainsaw Dunlap, widely regarded as one of the biggest assholes in the, in, in the history of American finance, was a fine of half a million dollars. Dunlap's net worth at the time was an estimated 100 million. The SEC also barred Dunlap from ever running a public company again, forcing him to retire with a mere 99.5 million dollars. Dunlap passed the time collecting royalties from his self congratulatory tori memoir it's title mean business the pattern of inaction towards shady deals on wall street grew grew worse and worse after turner left with one slam dunk case after another either languishing for years or disappearing altogether (coughs) excuse me perhaps the most notorious example involved gary agiri an sec investigator who was literally fired after he questioned the agency's failure to pursue an insider trading case against john mack Now the chairman of Morgan Stanley and one of America's most powerful bankers, John Mack. Aguirre joined the SEC in September 2004. Two days into his career as a financial investigator, he was asked to look into an insider trading complaint against a hedge fund megastar named Art Stamberg. One day, with no advanced research or discussion, Sandberg had suddenly started buying up huge quantities of shares in a firm called Heller Financial. It was as if Art Sandberg woke up one morning and a voice from the heavens told him to start buying Heller, Aguirre recalls. And he wasn't just buying shares. There were some days when he was trying to buy three times as many shares as were being traded that day. A few weeks later, Heller was bought by General Electric and Sandberg pocketed $18 million dollars. After some digging, Aguirre found himself focusing on one suspect as the likely source who who had tripped Sandberg off, John Mack, a close friend of Sandberg's who had just stepped down as president of Morgan Stanley. At the time, Mack had been on Sandberg's case to cut him into into a deal involving a spinoff of the tech company Lucent, an investment that stood to make Mack a lot of money. Mack is busting my chops to give him a piece of the action, Sandberg told an employee in an email. A week later, Mac flew to Switzerland to interview for a top job at Credit Suisse First Boston. Among the investment bank's clients, as it happened, was a firm called Heller Financial. We don't know for sure what Mac learned on his Swiss trip years later. Mac would claim that he had thrown away his notes about the meetings. But we do know that as soon as Mac returned from the trip on a Friday, he called up his buddy Sandberg the very next morning. Mac was cut into the Lucent deal, a favor that netted him more than $10 million. And as soon as the market reopened after the weekend, Sandberg started buying every Heller share in sight right before it was snapped up by GE. A suspiciously timed move that earned him the equivalent of Derek Jeter's annual salary for just a few minutes of work. The deal looked like a classic case of insider trading, but in the summer of 2005, when Aguirre told his boss he planned to interview Mac, things started getting weird. His boss told him the case wasn't likely to fly, explaining that Mac had powerful political connections. The investment baker had been a fundraising ranger for George Bush in 2004 and would go on to be a key backer of Hillary Clinton in 2008. Aguirre also started to feel pressure from Morgan Stanley, which was in the process of trying to rehire Mac as CEO. At first, Aguirre was contacted by the bank's regulatory liaison, Eric Dinalo, a former top aide to Elliot Spitzer. But it didn't take long for Morgan Stanley to work its way up up the SEC chain of command. Within three days, another of the firm's lawyers, Mary Jo White, was on the phone with the SEC's director of enforcement. In a shocking move that was later singled out by Senate investigators, the director actually appeared to reassure White, dismissing the case against Mac as smoke rather than fire. White, incidentally, was herself the former U.S. attorney of the Southern District of New York, one of the top cops on Wall Street. Pause for a minute to take this in. Agiri, an SEC foot soldier, is trying to interview a major Wall Street executive. Not handcuff the guy or impound his yacht, mind you, just talk to him. In the course of doing so, he finds out that his target's firm is being represented not only by Elliot Spitzer's former top aide, but by the former U.S. attorney overseeing Wall Street, who is going four levels over his head to speak directly to the chief of the SEC's enforcement division. Not Agiri's boss, but his boss's 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 boss, Mac himself. Meanwhile, was being represented by Gary Lynch, a former SEC director of enforcement. Aguirre didn't stand a chance. A month after he complained to his supervisors that he was being blocked from interviewing Mac, he was sum- summa- summarily fired without notice. The case against Mac was immediately dropped, all depositions canceled, no further subpoenas issued. It all happened so fast. I needed a seatbelt," recalls Aguirre, who had just received a stellar performance review for his boss, from his bosses. The SEC eventually paid Aguirre a settlement of $755,000 for wrongful dismissal. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Rather than going after Mac, the SEC started looking for someone else to blame for tipping off Sandberg. It was a Geary quips OJ's search for the real que- killers. It was a Geary Quips, O.J. Search for the Real kill- Killers. Okay. It wasn't until a year later that the agency finally got around to interviewing Mac, who denied any wrongdoing. The four-hour de- deposition took place on August 1, 2006, just days after the five-year statute of limitations on insider trading had expired in the case. At best, the picture shows extraordinarily lax enforcement by the SEC, Senate investigators would later conclude. At worst, the picture is colored with overtones of a possible cover-up. Episodes like this help explain why so many Wall Street executives felt emboldened to push the regulatory envelope during the mid-2000s. Over and over, even the most obvious cases of fraud and insider dealing got gummed up in the works, and high-ranking executives were almost never prosecuted for their crimes. In 2003, Freddie Mac coughed up $125 million after it was caught misreporting its earnings by $5 billion. Nobody went to jail. And then in 2006, Fannie Mae was fined $400 million. But executives who had overseen phony accounting techniques to jack up their bonuses faced no criminal charges. That same year, AIG paid $1.6 billion after it was caught in a major accounting scandal that would indirectly lead to its collapse two years later. But no executives at the insurance giant were prosecuted. All of this behavior set the stage for the crash of 2008, when Wall Street exploded in a raging Dresden of fraud and criminality Yet the SEC and the Justice Department have shown almost no inclination to prosecute those most responsible for the catastrophe, even though they had insiders from the two firms whose implosions triggered the crisis, Lehman Brothers and AIG, who were more than willing to supply evidence against top executives. In the case of Lehman Brothers, the SEC had a chance six months before the crash to move against Dick Fold, a man recently named the worst CEO of all time by Portfolio Magazine. A decade before the crash, a Lehman lawyer named Oliver Budd was going through the bank's proxy statements and noticed that it was using a loophole involving restricted stock units to hide tens of millions of dollars of Fold's compensation. Bud told his bosses that Lehman, Lehman's use of RSUs was dicey at best but they blew him off we're sorry about your concerns they told him but we're doing it disturbed by such shady practices the lawyer quit the firm in 2006. then only a few months after bud left Lehman, the sec changed its rules to force companies to disclose exactly how much compensation in rsu's executives had coming to them the sec was basically like we're sick and tired of you fucking you people fucking around we want a picture of what you're holding Bud says, but instead of coming clean about eight separate RSUs that Fold had hidden from investors, Lehman filed a proxy statement that was a masterpiece of cynical lawyering. On one page, a, charted, a chart indicated that Fold had been awarded $146 million in RSUs, but two pages later, a note in the fine print essentially stated that the chart did not contain the real number, which it failed to mention was actually $263 million more than the chart indicated. They fucked around even more than they did before, Bud says. The law firm that helped craft the fine print, Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett, would later receive a lucrative federal contract to serve as legal advisor to the TARP bailout. Bud decided to come forward. In April 2008, he wrote a detailed memo to the SEC about Lehman's history of hidden stocks. Shortly thereafter, he got a letter back that began, Dear Sir or Madam, it was an automated easy response. They blew, they blew me off, Bud says. Over the course of that summer, Bud tried to contact the SEC several more times and was ignored each time. Finally, in the fateful week of September 15, 2008, when Lehman Brothers cracked under the weight of its reckless bets on the subprime market and went into its final death spiral, Bud became seriously concerned. If the government tried to arrange for laymen to be pawned off on another Wall Street firm, as they had done with Bear Stearns, the US taxpayer, U.S. taxpayer might wind up footing the bill for a company with hundreds of millions of dollars in concealed compensation. So Bud again called the SEC right in the middle of the crisis. Look, he told regulars, I gave you huge stuff. You really need, want to take a look at this. But the feds once again blew him off. A young staff attorney called contacted bud who once more provided the sec with copies of all his memos he never heard from the agency again this was like a mini madoff bud says they had six solid months of warnings they could have done something three weeks later bud was shocked to see fold testifying before the house government oversight committee and whining about how poor he was i got no severance i got no no golden parachute fold moaned when rep republican henry waxman the committee's chairman mentioned that he thought fold had earned more than $480 million fold corrected him and said he believed it was only 310 million. The true number bud calculated was 529 million. He contacted a Senate investigator to talk about how fold had misled Conyers, but he never got any response. Meanwhile, in a demonstration of the government's priorities, the Justice Department is proceeding full force with the prosecution of retired baseball player Roger Clemens for lying to Congress about getting a shot of steroids in his ass. At least Roger didn't screw over the world, Bud says, shaking his head. Fold had denied any wrongdoing, but his hidden compensation was only a ripple in layman's raging tsunami of misdeeds. The investment bank used an absurd accounting trick called Repo 105 transactions to conceal $50 billion in loans on the firm's balance sheet. That's $50 billion, not million. But more than a year after, the use of the Repo 105s came to light. There have still been no indictments in the, unfair, in the affair. While it's possible that chain charges may yet be filed, there are now rumors that the SEC and the Justice Department may take no action against Layman. If that's true and there's no prosecution in a case where there's such overwhelming evidence and where the company is already dead, meaning it can't dump further losses on investors or taxpayers, then it might be time to assume the game is up. Failing to prosecute Fold Layman would be tantamount to the state marching into Wall Street and waving the green flag on a new stealing season. The most in the most amazing non-case in the entire crash, the one that truly defies the most basic notion of justice when it comes to Wall Street supervillains, is the one involving AIG and Joe Cassano, the nebishly patient the Nebeshi patient zero of the financial crisis. As chief of AIGFP, the firm's financial product subsidiary, Cassano repeatedly made public statements in 2007, claiming that his portfolio of mortgage derivatives would suffer no dollar of loss and almost comically obvious misrepresentation. God couldn't manage a $60 billion real estate portfolio without a single dollar of loss, says Turner, the agency's former chief accountant. If the SEC can make a disclosure, against, disclosure case against AIG, then they might as well close up shop, if they can't make one. As in the Lehman case, federal prosecutors not only had plenty of evidence against AIG, they also had an eyewitness to Cassano's actions who was prepared to tell all. As an accountant at AIGFP, Joseph St. Denis Dennis, had a number of run-ins with Cassano during the summer of 2007. At the time, Cassano had already made nearly $500 billion worth of derivative bets that would ultimately blow up, destroy the world's largest insurance company, and trigger the largest government bailout of a single company in U.S. history. He made many fatal mistakes, but chief among them was engaging in contracts that required AIG to post billions of dollars in collateral if there was any downgrade to its credit rating. St. Dennis didn't know about those clauses in Cassano's contracts. Since they had been written before he joined the firm, what he did know was that Cassano freaked out when St. Dennis spoke with an accountant at the parent company, which was only just finding out about the time bomb Cassano had set after St. Denis finished a conference call with the executive. Cassano suddenly burst into the room and began screaming at him for talking to the New York office. He then announced that St. Dennis had been deliberately excluded from any evaluations of the most toxic, toxic elements of the derivatives portfolio thus preventing the accountant from doing his job once what saint dennis represented was transparency and the last thing cassano needed was was transparency another clue that something was amiss with aigfp's portfolio came when goldman sachs demanded that the firm pay billions in collateral per the terms of cassano's deadly contracts such collateral calls happen happen all the time on Wall Street, but sell them against a seemingly solvent and friendly business partner like AIG. And when they do happen, they are rarely paid off without a, they are rarely paid without a fight. So St. Dennis was shocked when the IGFP agreed to fork over gobs of money to Goldman Sachs, even while it was still contesting the payments, an indication that something was seriously wrong at AIG. When I found out about the collateral call, I literally had to sit down, St. Dennis recalls. I had to go home for the day. After Cassano barred him from evaluating the derivative deals, St. Dennis had no choice but to resign. He got another job and thought he was done with AIG, but a few months later, he learned that Cassano had held a conference call with investors in December of 2007. During the call, AIGFP failed to disclose that it had posted $2 billion to Goldman Sachs following the collateral calls. Investors, therefore, did not know. The Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission would later conclude that AIG's earnings were overstated by $3.6 billion. I remembered thinking, wow, they're just not telling people, St. Dennis said. I knew I had been there. I I knew they posted collateral. A year later, after the crash, St. Dennis wrote a letter about his experience to the House Government Oversight Committee, which was looking into the AIG collapse. Excuse me. He also met with investigators for the government, which was preparing a criminal case against Cassano. Excuse me. But the case never went to court. Last May, the Justice Department confirmed that it would not file charges against executives at AIGFP. Cassano, who has denied any wrongdoing, was reportedly told he was no longer a target. Shortly after that, Cassano strolled into Washington to testify before the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. It was his first public appearance since the crash. He has not had to pay back a single cent out of the hundreds of billions of dollars he earned selling his insane pseudo insurance policies on subprime mortgage deals. Now out from under prosecution, he appeared before the FCIC and had the enormous balls to compliment his own business acumen, saying his atom bomb swaps portfolio was in retrospect, not that badly constructed. I think the portfolios are withstanding the test of time, he said. They offered him an excellent opportunity to to redeem himself, St. Dennis jokes. In the end, of course, it wasn't just the executives of Lehman and AIGFP who got passes. Virtually every one of the major players on Wall Street was similarly embroiled in scandal, yet their executives skated off into the sunset, uncharged and unfined. Goldman Sachs paid $550 million last year when it was caught defrauding investors with crappy mortgages, but no executive has been fined or jailed, not even Fabrice Fabulous Fab Tour, Touré, Goldman's outrageous Euro douche who gleefully emailed a pal about the surreal transactions in the middle of a meeting with the firm's victims. In a similar case, a sales executive at the German powerhouse, Deutsche Bank, got off on charges of insider trading. Its general counsel at the time of the questionable deals, Robert Kuzami, now serves as director of enforcement for the SEC. This is all back in 2011, guys. Another major firm, Bank of America, was caught hiding 5.8 billion dollars in bonuses from shareholders as part of its make takeover of Merrill Lynch. The SEC tried to let the bank off with a settlement of only 33 million dollars, but Judge Jed Rakoff rejected the action as a facade of enforcement. Facade of enforcement. So the SEC quintupled the settlement but it didn't require either Merrill or Bank of America to admit wrong, admit to wrongdoing. Unlike criminal trials in which the facts of the crime are put on record for all to see these wall street settlements almost never require the banks to make any factual disclosures effective, effectively bur- burying the stories forever. All this is done at the expense of not only the shareholders, but also of the truth. says Rakoff. Goldman, Deutsch, Merrill, Lehman, Bank of America. Who did we leave out? Oh, their Citigroup. Nailed for hiding some $40 billion in liabilities from investors. Last July, the SEC settled with City for $75 million. $40 billion, and they, got 75, they only had to pay $75 million of it. It's like, come on. In a rare move, it also fined two City executives, former CFO Gary Crittenden and investor relations chief Arthur Tild- Tildesley Jr. Their penalties combined, combined came to a whopping $180,000. Throughout the entire crisis, in fact, the government has taken exactly one serious swing of the bat against executives from a major bank, charging two guys from Bear Stearns with criminal fraud over a pair of toxic subprime hedge funds that blew up in 2007, destroying the economy and robbing investors of $1.6 billion. Jurors had an email between the defendants admitting that there is simply no way for us to make money ever just three days before assuring investors that there's no basis for thinking this is one big disaster. Yet the case still somehow ended in acquittal and the Justice Department hasn't taken any of the big banks to court since. All of which raises an obvious question, why the hell not? Gary Aguirre, the SEC investigator who lost his job when he drew the ire of Morgan Stanley, thinks he knows the answer. Last year, Aguirre noticed that a conference on financial law enforcement was scheduled to be held at the Hilton in New York on November 12th. The list of attendees included 1,500 or so of the country's leading lawyers who represent Wall Street, as well as some of the government's top cops from both the SEC and the Justice Department. Criminal justice, as it pertains to the Goldman and Goldman's and Morgan Stanley's entire of the world, is not adver- adversarial combat with cops and crooks duking it out in interrogation rooms and courthouses. Instead, it's a cocktail party between friends and colleagues who from month to month and year to year are constantly switching sides and trading hats. At the Hilton Conference, regulators and banker lawyers rubbed elbows during a series of speeches and panel discussions away from the rabble. They were chummier in that environment, says Agiri, who plunked down $2,200 to attend the conference. Agiri saw a lot of familiar faces at the conference for a simple reason. Many of the SEC regulators had held he had worked with during his failed attempt to investigate John Mack had made a million-dollar pass through the revolving door, going to work for the very same firms they used to police. Aguirre didn't see Paul Berger, an associate director of enforcement who had rebuffed his attempts to interview Mack, but maybe because Berger was tied up as a lucrative new job at Debevoie and Plimpton, the same law firm that Morgan Stanley employed to intervene in the Mack case, but he did see Mary Jo White, the former U.S. attorney, who was still at De- Debevoy and Plimpton. He also saw Linda Thompson, the former SEC director of uh, enforcement, who had been so helpful to White. Thompson had gone on to represent Wall Street as a partner in the prestigious firm of Davis, Polk, and Wardell. Two of the government's top cops were there as well. Preet Bharara, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and Robert Kuzami the SEC's current director of enforcement. Mara had been recommended for his post by Chuck Schumer, Wall Street's favorite senator, and both he and Kuzami had served with Mary Jo White at the U.S. Attorney's Office before Mary Jo went on to become a partner at the Bavoy. What's more, when Kuzami had served as general counsel for Deutsche Bank, he had been hired by none other than Dick Walker, who had been enforcement director at the SEC when it slow rolled the pivoter pivotal fraud against Rite aid it wasn't just one rotation of the revolving door says agiri it just kept spinning every single person had rotated in and out of government and private service the revolving door isn't just a footnote in financial law enforcement over the past over the past decade more than a dozen high-ranking sec officials have gone on to lucrative jobs at wall street banks or white shoe law firms where partnerships are worth millions That makes SEC officials like Paul Berger and Linda Thompson the equivalent of college basketball stars waiting for the first NBA contract. Are you really going to give up a shot at the Knicks or the Lakers just to find out whether a Wall Street big shot like John Mack was guilty of insider trading? You take one of these jobs, says Turner, the former chief accountant for the SEC, and you're fit for life. Fit and happy. The banter between the speakers at the New York conference says everything you need to know about the level of chumminess and mutual admiration that exists between these supposed adversaries of the justice system – At one point in the conference, Mary Jo White introduced Bahara, her old pal from the U.S. Attorney's Office. I want to first say how pleased I am to be here, Bahara responded. Then addressing White, he added, you spawned all of us. It's almost 11 years ago to the day that Mary Jo White called me and asked me if I would become an assistant U.S. attorney. So thank you, Dr. Frankenstein. Next, addressing the crowd of high-priced lawyers from Wall Street, Bahara made an interesting joke. I also want to take a moment to applaud the entire staff of the SEC for the really amazing things they have done over the past year, he said. They've done a real service to the country, to the financial community, and not to mention a lot of your law practices. Ha! The line drew Snickers from the Conference of of Millionaire Lawyers, but the real fireworks came when Kuzami, the SEC's Director of Enforcement, talked about a new cooperation initiative the agency had recently unveiled in which executives are being offered incentives to report fraud they have witnessed or committed. From now on, Kuzami said, when corporate lawyers like the ones he was addressing want to know if their Wall Street clients are going to be charged by the Justice Department before deciding whether to come forward, all they have to do is ask the SEC. We're going to try and get those individuals' answers, Kuzami announced, as to whether or not there's a criminal interest in the case so that defense counsel can have as much information as possible in deciding whether or not to choose to sign up their client. Agiri, listen, listening in the crowd, couldn't believe Kuzami's bra- brazenness. The SEC's enforcement director was saying in essence that firms like Goldman Sachs and AIG and Lehman Brothers will henceforth be able to get the SEC to act as a middleman between them and the Justice Department, negotiating fines as a way out of jail time. Kuzami was basically out uh, outlining a four-step system for banks and their executives to buy their way out of prison. First, the SEC and Wall Street player make an agreement on a fine that the player will pay to the SEC, Aguirre says. Then the Justice, Justice Department commits itself to pass so that the player knows he's safe. Third, the player the player pays the SEC. And fourth, the player gets a pass from the Justice Department. When I ask a former pro, federal prosecutor about the property of, propriety of a sitting SEC director of enforcement talking out loud about helping corporate defendants get answers regarding the status of their criminal case, he initially doesn't believe it. Then I send him a transcript of, of the comment. I am very, I am very, very surprised by Kuzami's statement, which does seem to be to me to be contrary to past practice and not a good thing. The former prosecutor says earlier this month, when Senator Chuck Grassley found out about Kuzami's comments, he sent the sec a letter noting that the agency's own enforcement manual not only prohibits such answer getting, it even bars the sec from giving defendants the justice department's phone number. Should counsel or the individual ask which criminal authorities they should contact the manual reads staff should decline to answer unless authorized by the relevant criminal authorities both the SEC and the Justice Department deny there's anything improper in their new policy of cooperation we collaborate with the SEC but they do not consult with us when they resolve their cases assistant attorney general Lanny Brewer assured Congress in January they do that independently Around the same time that Brewer was testifying, however, a story broke that prior to the pathetically small settlement of $75 million that the SEC had arranged with Citigroup, Kazami had ordered his staff to pursue lighter charges against the megabank's executives. According to a letter that was sent to Senator Grassley's office, Kuzami had a secret conversation without telling the staff with the prominent defense lawyer who is a good friend of his and who was counsel for the company. The unsigned letter, which appears to have come from an SEC investigator on the case, prompted the inspector general to launch an investigation into the charge. All this paints a disturbing picture of a closed and corrupt system, a timeless circle of friends that virtually guarantees a collegial approach to the policing of high finance. Even when the corruption even before the corruption starts, the state is crippled by economic reality. Since law enforcement of Wall Street requires serious intellectual firepower, the bank sees a huge the bank sees a huge advantage from the start by hiring away the top talent. Bud, the former layman lawyer says it's well known that all the best legal minds go to the big corporate law firms while the bottom 20% go to the SEC, which makes it tough for the agency to track devious legal machinations. Machinations like the scheme to hide $263 million of Dick Fold's compensation. It's such a mismatch, it's not even funny, Bud says. But even beyond that, the system is skewed by the irresponsible pull of riches and power. If talent rises in the SEC or the Justice Department, it sooner or later jumps ship for those fat MBA contracts. Or conversely, graduates of the big corporate firms take sabbaticals from the rich lifestyles to slum it in government service for a year or two. Many of those appointments are inevitably handpicked by lifelong stooges for Wall Street, like Chuck Schumer, who has accepted $14.6 million in campaign contributions from Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and other major players in the finance industry, along with their corporate lawyers. As for President Obama, what is there to be said? Goldman Sachs has number one private was his number one private campaign contributor. He put a Citigroup executive in charge of his economic transition team, and he just named an executive of JP Morgan Chase, the proud owner of seven point seven million dollars in Chase stock, his new chief of staff. The betrayal that this represents by Obama is to everybody is just we're not ready to believe it, says Bud. A classmate of the president from the Columbia, from their Columbia days. He's really fucking over us like that. Really? That's really a JP Morgan guy, really. Which is not to say that the Obama era has met an end to law enforcement. On the contrary, in the past few years, the administration has allocated massive amounts of federal resources to catching wrongdoers. If a certain type, of a certain type. Last year, the government deported 393,000 people at a cost of $5 billion. Since 2007, felony immigration prosecutions along the Mexican border have surged 77%, non felony prosecutions by 259%. In Ohio last month, a single mother was caught lying about where she lived to put her kids into a better school district. The judge in that case tried to sentence her to 10 days in jail for fraud, declaring that letting her go free would demean the seriousness of the offenses. So there you have it. Illegal immigrants, 393,000. Lying moms, one. Bankers, zero. The math makes sense only because the politics are so obvious. You want to win elections, you bang on the jailable class. You build prisons and fill them with people for selling dime bags and stealing CD players, but for stealing a billion dollars for fraud, that puts a million people into foreclosure pass. It's not a crime. Prison is too harsh. Get them to say they're sorry and move on. Oh, wait, let's not even make them say they're sorry. That's too mean. Let's just give them a piece of paper with a government stamp on it, officially clearing them of the need to apologize and make them pay a fine instead, but don't make them pay it out of their own pockets. And don't ask them to give back the money they stole. In fact, let them profit from their collective crimes to the tune of a record $135 billion in pay benefits last year. What's next? Taxpayer-funded massages for every Wall Street executive guilty of fraud. Shoot, this probably already a thing. The mental stumbling block for most Americans is that financial crimes don't feel real. You don't see the culprits waving signs, guns in liquor stores or dragging co into bo- bushes, but these frauds are worse than common robberies. They're crimes of intellectual choice made by people who are already rich and who have every conceivable social advantage acting on a simple, cynical calculation. Let's steal wherever we can. Then dare the victims to find the justice to reclaim their money through a captive bureaucracy. They're attacking This very definition of property, which after all depends in part on a legal system that defends everyone's claims of ownership equally. When that definition becomes tenuous or conditional, when the state simply gives up the notion of justice, this whole American dream thing recedes even further from reality. Wow, 2011, and these guys are still getting away with this shit. So, I mean... I don't really read news and stuff. And this, this is from 2011. So it's not current news, but it's definitely going on with what's going on right now. Um, you know, definitely all the same patterns. You know, people are just pay attention guys. Hold strong. Do your thing. Let's take them down. Let's take them down. They need to be prosecuted. They seriously do. These guys are stealing your money and they're not giving it back. They're not being, they're not going to jail or prison for it. Like, they're getting no repercussions and they're still allowed to just be out there. So take them down. Do it. Okay. Bye.